This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. Today on the program, I am joined by sports writer, columnist, MLB Network's own John Morosi. Johnny, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for being patient. We've got podcasts running into podcasts. I didn't even get a chance to change my shirt. So what am I going to do now? <laughs> Booney, it is my pleasure to be with you. It's, it's remarkable. It's a little bit of a different circumstance. Like 19 years ago, I was a young first year MLBB writer interviewing you. And now somehow you're interviewing me. And I'm very grateful that you invited me. Thank you so much. It, it is a trip. And a lot of my buddies through the year in the media, you know, the guys that were there for my whole career, they go, Booney, this is surreal. We never, I said, do you ever think in a million years I'd be interviewing you? No, that was 05. P.I. Seattle, man, Johnny, I apologize. Any because my producer, when, when I was getting ready for the John Morosi interview, my producer said, "In 05, I said, I'll tell you what, I don't remember much about 05, but I know it was a rough one for me." I said, "So hopefully, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't that great. big of a jerk." You were yeah, great to me. 05 one, was- of favorite, one of my favorite things, first of all, you always shared your insights on the game, which I appreciated. I learned a lot from our conversations, and I also loved. The setup that you had in the Mariner Clubhouse back then with your bats, because you had the hot pile and the cold pile. So when yeah. you were going good, you went to the hot pile. That's that's where the bats were. And then if there was a bat that wasn't quite behaving itself, you put it in the cold pile and you come back for the next series. I, I blame that all on Edgar Martinez. He he turned me into a bat psycho. I mean, I came I came to Seattle and Edgar to this day, one of my favorite teammates and and one of my best friends in the game. I came to Seattle as a normal person. I would order a 34 inch, 32 ounce bat and me and Edgar became close. And you know, it's Edgar Martinez. I picked his brain. I learned a lot from Edgar, uh, from an offensive side. And we talk, you know, every night after the game at length and we talk about anything and pitching and, and swings and approaches and, he started getting into this bat thing where his bats had to be a certain, it wasn't 32 ounces or 31 ounce. It had to be like 32.6. And he had this little thing and he'd put it in a cup and he'd weigh it. And I'd go, what are you doing weighing your bats? I'm telling you by 05, I, I was cuckoo. I, if my bats weren't 32.2, I, I'd be calling, I'd be calling Louisville going, come on, you got to get them right. It ran me out of the game, Johnny. It ran me out of the game. <laughs> but- that was a really fun team to cover because, of course, we had Ichiro on the team. He'll be in the Hall of yeah. Fame. Beltre right now looking like a first yeah. ballot 
Hall of Famer. Felix arrived yes. that year. You're playing with the great Raul Abanez, one of the tremendous people in the game. Yes. Jamie Moyer was on that team. So there were some really interesting characters and, and fun stories to write, even as the team struggled a bit that season. Yeah, Moyer, he was a rookie that year. He went on. I think play he was. Another, yeah, it was just a start. About of his, another twenty years. <laughs> exactly. I remember you look at you look at that career and and Jamie's baseball card, Brett. It's one of the coolest things when whenever you want to talk with younger players or even players in the middle of their career to convey to them, hey, you're barely in the first half. If, if you're on the Moyer plan, you're just getting started. Like the number of wins that he had from forty and older. I think his last game, he was 48 with Colorado, I believe, was his last appearance. Julio Franco was around the same time. I think he was – Julio played until maybe he was 47. It's it's the, the longevity to me, Booney. It's one of the cool things I love about your podcast, too, because you talk with guys who find ways to keep the game young and keep it fresh. And with the everyday nature of the sport, that is the key thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... We're going to get right into it. Hall of Fame. I checked your ballot out. I've been critiquing your ballot. No, I'm kidding. Um, you get that ballot. What's what is what's the threshold for you? Um, and what's the most important criteria when filling out your ballot? Because Hall yeah. of Fame, it it's it's a very it, this time of year. Uh, you're well. I'm going to get to that later. All right. I'm just asking a question. What's your criteria? What's your threshold? And take threshold for what it is. Right. No, it's an important question, Brett. I, I am someone that I vote for the 10 most deserving candidates that I have on my ballot. Now, some people are more small hall. I'm big hall. I like to at least balance out the small hall crowd because I do like the idea of honoring people in Cooperstown. I think it's an important thing that when when given the choice, I tend to err on the side of when you elect someone, and if they're right around 65%, 70%, darn it, let's find the, find those additional 5% because when they come there in the summertime, they bring in thousands of fans, it grows the game. It grows the appreciation of our sport. It makes people learn about baseball history in new ways and I believe contributes to the love of baseball and interest in the sport around the world. That's that's my general predisposition about voting and and the the criteria it's not just about filling it up with as many people as you can the idea here is you want to vote for people who are historically deserving and when i look at each chapter of the game's history i say and ask myself this question if i'm going to write a one-page summary about the era in which this player played how many times would i mention this player's name in that summary how important are they in the story of that era. And that's why not everybody votes for Tory Hunter, but I do. And you you were a peer of Tories in the game. Tory for the first decade of this century was as impactful of a defensive player as we had in the sport. He won nine gold gloves. He was one of the preeminent defensive center fielders of his time. And oh, by the way, played more than 2,000 games that 2000 hit area, like he did a lot in the game. And that's where I like making the case for players who are maybe the seventh, eighth or ninth player on somebody else's ballot. I, I believe that Tory at the very least belongs in the conversation every single year. And so I'm, I'm more than happy to support candidacies for players who are on that fringe of getting 5% because he belongs in the conversation of the best players of his time. 
Yeah, Tori's definitely a. Uh, I, I played at Tori at the very end of my career. Uh, definitely one of the best center fielders of my my generation, especially on the defensive side of the ball. I and I got to play with some good ones. You know, I got to play with Griffey as a rookie, and I played with uh, Mike Cameron, who was just outstanding in center field. And I got to play one year with my opinion the best I've ever seen, and that's Andrew Jones. And I played mm-hmm. with him in 99 in Atlanta. Um, this time of year, it seems like there's always controversy and there's outrage when it comes – because baseball is a little bit different than the other sports. It doesn't seem there's as much outrage and controversy, but you guys, it's become kind of a ritual now. You, uh, Some guys reveal their ballots on Twitter. Some guys don't. Sorry, X. Now it's X. Um Seems like it's only baseball, though. Do you think the current system is good? Would it be easier if it was a secret ballot, or do you like the way it is? I do like the way it is. And one of the reasons why I like the way it is, Booney, is that I have to defend my ballot. I like that. I, I like that that you are held to account when you put your work out in the public and people can agree or disagree. But the debate and the discussion is all appropriate. We're... we're Helping we, the baseball writers, we help the Hall of Fame choose the people to honor. That, that's the way that it works. They, they've asked us for our advice and our help. And when I think about that, Brett, it's a, it's a tremendous honor that they've asked us to help with that process. Now, certainly there is the, the ERA committee that considers candidates who were not elected by the players or by, by the writers, rather, or those who are umpires, executives, managers like Jim Leland, who's, of course, going in this summer. I still believe that uh, one of the great second basemen, Lou Whitaker, I I would love to hear your thoughts on Lou. I think Lou belongs in the Hall of Fame. I I think that Jeff Kent belongs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, As we talk about his his vote, I still can't figure out why he wasn't. Kent's got to be in. Kent's got to be in. 100%. 100% needs to be in. And so I, I, I appreciate the discussion. Brett, because it tells me that people care. That that's how I that's how I interpret discussion and debate. If you didn't care, then when I put my ballot out there, there'd be zero response. The fortunate thing is people respond, whether it's positive or negative, and I love it all because it tells me that people care about the history of the game, which is empirically a great thing. If there's one thing you could change about the process, what would it be? Great question. Uh, I, I would I would change the number of players that we could support on a ballot. Again, I mentioned that I'm a big hall guy. Actually, this year I did not have room to vote for Mark Burley, and and so I had to leave Burley off my ballot this year. Hopefully, I'll find a way to get him back on in the future. But that's the kind of person and player whose career I think deserves more of a hearing. There is no way, Booney, no way that Jim Edmonds should have been a one-and-done. Carlos Delgado, one-and-done. Delgado, unbelievable. We can we can argue if they eventually should be in the Hall of Fame. Right, right. But there's no way that Delgado deserved to be a one-and-done. Look, look at what an incredible run producer he was year after year after year, and he fell off after one year. Posada was one-and-done. Again, these are candidates, I, I, I believe, Booney, there's – there are like three tiers of this. There's the guys that are one and done and, and frankly probably should be one and done. There are the guys that eventually get in, and that's the, the elite of the elite who get 75% support. And then there's that middle group. 
that at least are on there every year. I'm not sure if Gary Sheffield gets in this year, but at least he had his full 10 years to be considered. I really believe those players that fall off before they should, I think that in a lot of ways is, is a really unfortunate part of the way that it works. And, and someone like Matt Holiday, I believe there's a case to be made for him as one of the top players of his time. And, and I think too, Brett, that there's, there tends to be such a fixation now on, on numbers. And listen, numbers matter. Numbers are a huge part of what I look at. But I know this. When Yadier Molina's name is on my ballot, check, he's in. Because I saw it. I saw a lot of games in St. Louis in October, the, the years that I've been covering the playoffs, when he was in the middle of it. And, and there's a certain piece, and, and your dad played that position so well for so long. I don't need to look at all the numbers that your dad put up to know the impact that he made on the game because the catching position is special. And, and that's where I think one of the reasons why Joe Maurer is having a really good run in his first time around because there is still a, a really special quality to that particular position where value as a catcher is simply different than the rest of the positions on the diamond. Uh, you bring up the Delgado thing. Man, that bothers me. Uh, Freddie McGriff, who I think is a Hall of Famer, he finally got into the Veterans Committee. You, you, you put his bubblegum card up next to Delgado's. They're very similar. Very similar. Carlos, Carlos was a beast. And when I say beast, I mean it in a, in a, in a very good way. Um, but there is, no, there is no surefire way to do this. Yes, as a player, I, I'm, I'm with you. More is better for me. Fans go to Cooperstown. They want to see their favorite players. They don't want to, you know, it's not like, well, we'll squeak one in every three years and we watch the NFL just induct six a year. You know, we, we want to expand that hall. And that's what people go to Cooperstown to see their favorite players. And there's so many players uh, that I look at that should be in the Hall of Fame. I, I know there's always going to be the controversy of my generation and, and the the PED era. I get it. Uh, I get the guys that, that tested positive, got, um, got suspended. I understand how that affects some people's ballots. The, the thing, when I look at that, that bothers me is everybody always wants to say, well, well, he did it the right way, but he didn't. Uh, how, are we playing God now? I guess, you know, what everybody did by how they look, you know, that, that, that's the only thing. And, and I won't make a big deal about that, but I'm with you. I like better uh, going to your Jeff Kent. It drives me crazy that Jeff Kent isn't in the game. I look at generations, Johnny, and I don't know if you do. Today, it's a little bit different how guys are judged. The best players hit second in the lineup, hit first in the lineup. In my time, you were in the three and the four hole. We were the guys that were driving in the runs. Uh, so the stats are going to be a little bit different. In, in my generation, you were judged on your average, your home runs, and your RBIs. If you were a slick field and center fielder, uh, that stole bases, you'd be judged on stealing bases. Today, it's a little bit different. We talk about OPS and we talk about OPS plus. That's what the guys today are being judged upon. So probably their Hall of Fame ballot comes up. They're going to be judged on their era. I, I really think, and that's why there's not one perfect system of how we, we identify. To break it down, in my opinion, how it's easy is did you dominate your position for long enough? What is long enough? Two or three years? No, I man, I had a run in the early 2000s where I dominated for two or three years. 
but it's not enough. It's like I can look at myself in the mirror and go, damn it, if I could have done that for another two, two three years, yes. Uh, but I didn't. I look at Jeff Kent. Man, he he he's top five in every major run-producing category. And I can't – I'm banging my head against the wall going, why – isn't he getting more than 15%? Um, he did it all. And, and then they'll try to go to his defense. Believe me, as a second baseman, we're very critical of one another. Especially in my time, it was like, I've got to really respect you to give you the kudos, especially on the defensive side. I watched Jeff Kent play. I played with Jeff Kent in high school. We were on a Connie Mack team together. He was a third baseman. Wow. I watched him play, and yes, he wasn't the greatest defensive second baseman, but he came, he became very efficient, and and especially when it came to turning a double play, he could turn a double play. He wasn't, yeah, he had limited range. He wasn't getting everything, but I'll tell you what, he was better than people gave him credit defensively. Definitely serviceable, and on the offensive side of the ball, he had an, he had an MVP season, but he had a lot where he was the top, offensive second baseman in all the game. And, and, and I watched stuff like that. I watched the Delgados. I think you made a great point. It doesn't mean Carlos Delgado gets into the hall of fame, but he deserves what he did. His, 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 uh, body of work deserves more than a one and done. And you know, that's, that's why I think it's great. You say you like to debate it. It's fun for me to kick around too, as an ex player, you know, cause we look at each other and it's kind of, that guy's a Hall of Famer. Uh, that guy's knocking at the door. That guy's a maybe. No, he's not a Hall of Famer. He's a really good player. And then people say, well, how can you do that? Well, when you play against a guy for 10 years, you kind of just know who are the guys that are just a, a little bit better than than uh, than the rest. And, you know, I got a chance to play with a lot of Hall of Famers, and there's definitely a little bit of a difference about them. Let me go over your ballot really quick, and, and I'll let you take it uh, player by player. First guy on the list, and I love this guy. I played with him as a young player. I mentioned him earlier. Best defensive center fielder I've ever seen, and I was fortunate enough to play with a lot. Go with Andrew Jones. Andrew Jones, for me, Boney, I, I love the way you framed it because I, you you used the word best. In terms of the, the history the of the game, you want to go with those that, that have that word that ends in EST, greatest, best, whatever it is. He fits that category, and he won 10 gold gloves in a row. And when you're able to do that at that position, I, I know the point's been made by other veteran players who played with Andrew that – if he had retired after those first 10 years, just walked away from the game, we would have said first ballot Hall of Famer. And then he hangs on a bit and his numbers go down, which is what is supposed to happen in your 30s. And and for some reason, he's getting criticized for that, for just having a normal aging curve where you're not the same player at 35 that you were when you were 25. That's supposed to be the case. And so I, I have a real issue with the notion that he played himself out of the Hall of Fame in some way. I, he was still, by the way, a valuable player later in his career to the Yankees. It was in more of a platoon role, but he was still a good ball player. And, and the peak was so great on some historically significant teams in Atlanta, Brett, that he belongs in there. And I, I look at it and say, that's part of the reason why I like Tory as, as a Hall of Famer, too. You compare their resumes. Andrew was obviously maybe more of a pure power hitter during those times, but still – 10 gold gloves for Jones, 
nine gold gloves for Tory. It's a it's a somewhat similar resume, and I think it, it's helped in Andrew's case by playing on a team that, as you saw right up close, historically significant. The the playoff streak the Braves had, he was a huge part of that. They don't have that streak without Andrew Jones. I agree. And when you talk about, because let's be honest, Johnny, people aren't getting elected defensively, you know, unless you're Ozzie Smith, you know, Omar, Omar Vizquel's finding that out right now. Uh, but if there is a spot in the Hall of Fame, if we're going to just strictly go on the greatest defensive center fielder ever, uh, I'm with you. I'm picking Andrew Jones. Man, he he just was a little bit better, and and I hate it because Ken Griffey Jr. is the best player I ever played with. Andrew's better in center field defensively. I'm sorry, I saw it for one year. You know that Maddox Smoltz glab, and they would rave about it. I I saw Bobby Cox, and and I'm this is a true story. I saw Bobby Cox. Andrew made another one of his plays, and Bobby Cox said, "Willie Mays, my ass," <laughs> and I remember him saying that, and I'm going. Wow, Bobby's seen Willie Mays play, and he's saying Andrew's better. So when you start, when they start telling you you're better than Willie Mays in center field defensively, that's a pretty high praise coming from Bobby Cox. Um, all right, so we got Andrew Jones and Hunter Mauer. I, for me, Mauer's a first ballot Hall of Fame catcher just from the offensive prowess that he showed that was so much better than uh, pretty much all his peers. Three batting titles in four years. As a catcher, Brett, that, that is unbelievable. right there, period, full stop. That had never been done before by a catcher in the history of the game. We just talked about that, the historic quality of the achievements. When you hang a plaque in the Great Hall and say, he did something that was never done before, that's what Joe Maurer did. Three batting titles in four years as a catcher. And, and the entire story, it's it's not – and obviously this is sort of a, a sort of supporting – anecdotal information on his overall achievements, but the batting titles were great. The, the defensive ability behind the plate was great. And the fact that he played for one franchise happened to be his hometown team, which drafted him first overall. He's born in St. Paul. He plays his entire career in Minneapolis, went to the same high school as his final manager in the big leagues, Paul Molitor. You start adding up these different, Threads of a story, Brett, is really remarkable what he was able to achieve. And I just think that 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 stroke, as I would love to hear your thoughts, just as as a fellow hitter, why it works so well, because it seemed to me that he had as compact of a swing as it got. And one of my favorite details as well, in addition to the, the great three three batting titles, he broke up three no hitters in the ninth inning. And that's the kind of thing, Booney, as a fellow player that I'm sure you love, the ability to focus in on a day when the other guy has his absolute best stuff. It seemed like Joe Maurer, like his his swing was so short and simple that you just could not beat him. And he found a way by the time that third or fourth plate appearance kicked in, he wasn't going to let you beat him in the ninth inning. He was, to me, I mean, when you win a batting title, different. that's a different level. But I, I used to watch... Joe Maurer hit and, and, and he was kind of coming into the game as my career was winding down. So I got to see Joe as a young player. And the first thing that comes into my mind from the offensive side, I think you hit it on the head when you said, especially at the catching position. And I have a big appreciation for it. The farther I get away from the game of 
the physical of the catching position, putting the gear on year day in, day out, getting behind that plate and then having to hit at the time. I thought, no, it's no different than doing this or doing that. I, there is a difference. So I give him extra points for being a catcher and doing it. But when I watched him from the very beginning, uh, the, the one guy that came in mind and one of my favorite men in all the game of baseball and a teammate of mine for, for three years in Seattle, Johnny Olerud. And the same approach and the same demeanor and the same poise and the same, you know, the ability to slow that heartbeat down and to, and to slow that breath down. Joe Maurer had it. I think of a young Chipper Jones, how poised he was. And I, and I remember in 1995 watching Chipper Jones going, this kid's 21 years old. Bobby Cox is hitting him third. And look at him. He's acting like he's 50, he's 50 years old. He's a, he's on the veterans committee, the way he behaved. You don't see that too much. You know, when we're young, we're hungry. Our hair's on fire. We got to prove to everybody how good you are. We're aggressive. And Chipper just had that uncanny ability to slow down his heart, slow down his breath, and act like that mature guy. Like, yeah, I'm 21. I'm in the middle of this great Braves lineup. Watch me. And we did. And, and man, was I impressed because I knew what was going on in my brain at 21. And I didn't look like Chipper looked. Hmm. Johnny Olerud, same thing. He just had that uncanny ability to slow it down. I'm getting long winded here, but long story short, that's what I saw with a young Joe Mowers. That's Johnny Olerud. And now that's you do it as you do it as a catcher. That's first yeah. ballot for me. And, and that's a great call, Brett, on that comparison between Olerud and Maurer. And, and on the catching position, I remember I had a conversation with your dad a long time ago, and he had a, he had a great piece of advice about the catching position because I asked him, I think your dad's like most games caught in a season were in like his age 40 or 41 year. It was incredible how many games he caught late into his career. And he said to me that, and I had never really thought of it this way, he said basically – he learned the further he went in the game, while you might think that it's harder and harder to catch when you're in your late 30s, and obviously it is, but your dad said that he was able to figure out physically and also mentally what it took to get out there. And that it was almost like he, he learned in his body what he needed to do to be able to be that available for his team, which to me just like that like blew my mind that for that he told me it actually got easier the further he got in his career for, for most mere mortals, Brett, they would say it's the opposite, but your dad actually said that something about knowing maybe how to set up, how to take care of himself, how to prepare for a game, how to prepare for an off season, that those types of preparation elements got easier for him. The older he got, which is just something that it struck me as so extraordinary that I've remembered it all these years later. And I've just never forgotten when your dad told me that. Yeah. He's told me those stories too. And actually, if you look at his career and how it, not only was he just really smart, you know, the guys like my dad and, and I didn't come to appreciate the catching position. Like I said, until I was retired and now I watch and, and the mind games and the, the presence you have to have back there as a hitter, I'd hit off different things, but it was bullpen. It was who's, who's hitting behind me. What have I done this series? Who's in the bullpen? What have I done this series? But it was also how smart is this catcher? Is he thinking with me or is he just putting down numbers? If he throws me a fastball, I hit a ball in the gap. Does that eliminate fastball for this catcher? Cause he doesn't want to throw me another fastball. Well, if that's the case, this is easy pickings. I've just eliminated a pitch, but I don't want those smart guys that the Jason Veritex used to drive me crazy. Cause I'd be sitting on a pitch. He'd throw me a different pitch. He'd 
raise his mask and look at me and kind of go, Booney, you ain't looking, <laughs> you ain't looking for that pitch, are you? And I'm like, damn it. Now the chess game begins. You know, I you're right. Like Bob that's, Boone that's was great. one of those guys. That's a great point. And, and two, I, I've heard catchers say this as well, that, that because of the nature of their position defensively, when you think about it, they see they're tracking every pitch. So th- they, they body know, right. Exactly. They know exactly where the strike zone is on that day and their eyes are so good. And so when it comes to understanding the strike zone, what pitches to offer at, they know it intrinsically in a way that honestly, the rest of the players in the diamond don't have that same exposure to the strike zone, every single pitch. And, and you look at, I think Jorge Posada, one of his best years offensively was his last year. He was just, he, he, I think much like your dad seemed to get better with age. And that's just, that's why catchers are special and why, as I mentioned with, with Yachty, it's going to be such an easy yes. Uh, whatever his whatever his career batting average was, fine. All I know is that he was there every every year. And I, I one of my favorite stats about Yachty, who we'll get to on a future ballot, but the the his immediate predecessor as the Cardinals' everyday catcher uh, opening day. So the opening day catcher in two thousand four was Mike Matheny, who by the who who Yachty's career and and streak of opening day starts was still going by the time Matheny had managed him and then lost the job. And Yachty right. was still starting every day on opening day. Like, that just tells you the longevity of the of the great catchers. Uh, next two, we'll take them two at a time. Uh, Adrian Beltre, who was a teammate of mine, I, I think, strictly from a number standpoint. I mean, tremendous gold glove caliber, year in and year out third baseman. But uh, the numbers are you know, they're up there with the greatest numbers of all time from that position. To me, it's a no brainer. So we'll go with Adrian Beltre and Carlos Beltran, who I looked at Beltran's numbers better than I thought they were impressive. Had that stolen base home run combo. Uh, Take those two just briefly. Yes. So Beltre, it's interesting to me, Booney, because I remember back to that Oh five year. If you had told me right then that he was going to be a first ballot hall of famer, I, I don't think it was clear at that point. It was not at all clear. He actually did not make his first all-star team until his 13th major league season in 2010 with the Boston Red Sox, the one year he spent in Boston. And then that kind of set himself up. He then signs the long-term deal with Texas and Texas. It wasn't until his fourth team that he became a Hall of Famer. And that was where he eventually got 3,000 hits. Uh, he finished in the top 10 of the MVP multiple times once he got to Texas. Of course, he had a huge year in, in, in L.A. right before he signed with the Mariners. But I think that, to me, the durability, the availability, the reliability, I think he made it to the big league so early, Brad. He was just 18 years old with the Dodgers. Uh, he gets there in the late 90s when that team was still, you think about those mid to late 90s Dodgers, that was still a team that was in, in flux a lot at that point, and he gets the big leagues early, super early. And I just think that he was able to, to stay around the major leagues long enough to certainly, as you, as you mentioned, compile the 3,000 hits and all the home runs that he hit and all the, all the gold gloves at third base. He just stayed in such a, a, a freshness and love for the game that I think it, it kept the game fresh for him and, and propelled him on this amazing career. But he did not become a Hall of Famer until his fourth team, which I think is just a great story of perseverance for young players today that it takes a while sometimes, and Adrian got there. Beltron for me, one of the best switch hitters ever, that elite group of, of switch hitters with a certain number of home runs. He had more RBI, Brett, than Mickey Mantle. 
I know people are criticizing him at times for the for the sign stealing scandal with the Astros. And listen, nah. I understand the severity of it, but that was in his final year, and yeah. and he was a forty year old player at that point who who had already had the Hall of Fame resume. I don't think it's fair for people to still criticize him for that and try to keep him out of the hall for something that happened in his final major league season. I agree with you. I agree with you on both. And and look, I look at your ballot and I don't know that I would, you know, cause I don't have to vote and I don't vote, but I don't know if I'd circle everyone you circled, but I've been looking at it and there's definitely a point to be made to each and every pick that you that made out there. I'll take the next two veteran guys, uh, Gary Sheffield, who for me, uh, that's a no doubter for me. He's one of the best, best hitters of my time. Unorthodox as they come. You know, I tell young hitters don't hit like Gary. There's exceptions to the rule. Uh, Gary could hook the sinker away down the left field line, wrap it around the foul pole for a home run, but I wouldn't suggest taking that approach. He was one of a kind, but he's one of the true great hitters of my generation that everybody loved. You know, he had the iconic batting style. Uh, but just a great, great hitter, batting champ. Uh, the numbers are all there for me. Uh, I think he's one of those guys that should have been in years ago for me. So take him and Todd Helton. Yes. Chef, I, I love this about Chef uh, among many things, Brett. 400 more walks than strikeouts. Think about that. Amazing. And compare it to today's game. When, you're, when you've got 400 more walks than strikeouts and more than 500 home runs, that is – elite of the elite you talk about understanding the strike zone doing damage one of the most feared hitters of his time i i I would love to anybody that does not vote for chef maybe just queue up a tape of everybody who played third base against him and just have them all talk for a while and then decide afterward if you still want to not vote for him (laughs) after listening to what they have to say uh and and listen there there certainly you look at his career as, as one of the, the, the great journalists who I trust a lot has talked about different candidates, you believe in his career because the player he was when he began was the player he was at the end. The consistency of the production was there. The reliability of the run production was there. Uh, I just think, and also one of the great characters in the game, I can't wait. I Hopefully he'll, he'll become a Hall of Famer. His speech, Booney, is going to be one of the great speeches ever. Because his personality is just so unique and, and and so authentic. I love the authenticity of Chef. So he's an easy vote for me, yes. And Todd Helton, we talk so much about Coors Field. The power numbers there, I actually had a conversation with Tulo about this, George Tulowitzki in, in recent days. He said, listen, yes, the, the big gaps help. It's a great place to hit. But the, but the expanse of the outfield, the power numbers there are real. When if you're hitting a bunch of home runs at Coors, yeah, you, your doubles and some of the other, uh, you get a lot of base hits that drop in front of outfielders because of just how big the outfield is. Mm-hmm. But but the power numbers there are real. And for someone that spent his entire career in Colorado, helped get that team to the World Series, one of the pure hitters of his time, just in, in terms of just bat to ball, tremendous skill, hand eye, it's all there. And people forget, and Tulo talked about this with, with me as well, when you left Denver on a road trip and, and you know those from having played there and then traveled away from there, the ball spins differently. Your body responds differently. Every different, every time that you got on the plane and left there and then came back, it, it took a toll on your body. And Todd was able to be there available in the lineup, playing hurt, dependable, reliable 
Hall of Famer for me all day, all day, all day long. I'm with you on Todd. I mean, he, he, he was just a great hitter. It's, and it's unfortunate, you know, uh, because of Colorado, they've done some things since, since I've been, since I finished playing with the humidor to try to contain it a little bit better. But just because you're drafted by the Colorado Rockies or you're traded to the Colorado Rockies and you're great, it's like you got one strike against you. Oh, because it's, it's always going to be, oh, because it's course. I played against a lot of great players, Johnny. Played with a lot of great players. Larry Walker, I can count on one hand, one of the best baseball players I've ever been around. And that means catch, throw, run the bases. People don't think about that. How good did he run the base? He was an unbelievable base runner. He was an unbelievable smart player. A guy that's in the same category for me with a, with a Larry Walker is a, is a Jeff Bagwell. Everybody knows the numbers are there. But as a baseball player, the intricacies, the things that I see on a daily basis, people didn't know. I said, do you realize how unbelievable of a base runner Jeff Bagwell is? He never makes a mistake. He always gets a good jump. You never pick him off. These are the little things that I would notice. And, and, and I, it, you know, it hurt Larry a little bit too, when he got inducted to the hall of fame, people are, Oh, the Colorado numbers. I'm like, it's one of the best baseball players I've ever been around. So I feel bad for the Colorado because no matter how great you are, you're always going to have that strike against you. Oh, it's just because of where you play. That's a great point, Booney. And then just on the base running angle, uh, a quick story for you. I think that's one of the reasons why Scott Rowland got in the Hall of Fame, and deservedly so, this past year was his base running. And my, one of my favorite stories that we told around the time that the, the induction ceremony happened was, so Skip Schumacher, of course, now the, the Marlins manager, and you, and you can identify with this story being a second baseman. The first time once Rowland went to – Cincinnati, of course, he had gone to Toronto and then Cincinnati. So he's back in the NL Central playing against the Cardinals. And that rivalry for a few years was as heated as any in the sport, Cardinals and Reds. So now the Cardinals are playing against Roland. <laughs> and Chris Carpenter, before the first game of the first series they played against each other, he went out and bought Skip Schumacher a pair of soccer shin guards because they were going to be playing against Scott Roland. And he said, Skip, you're going to want to wear these playing against Roland. Think about that. He had to alter his uniform because of how hard Scott would slide into second base. And Skip said, I just, I had to put it on because Carp, everybody, everybody admires Chris so much. He said, the veteran said, put him on, put him on. And, uh, and he said, it's a good thing he had it. Actually, Skip said, as time went on in his career, he started continuing to wear some shin guards uh, at, at playing second base out in the field because of how hard some guys would slide. And Roland is one of those guys. Yep. I will take these guys as a combo. They played against each other for a, or played with each other in the middle for a long time. Uh, Chase Utley and Mr. Rollins. You've got them both on the ballot. I really hope, Booney, that Utley's support in year one for him will help people give a second look to Jimmy Rollins because this is the longest-running double-play combo in the National League. We've talked before about Whitaker, Whitaker and Trammell in the American Trammell, League yeah. and MLB overall. But I look at them as a great duo, and they belong in, I think, both of them. Utley, you mentioned, I think he's a really interesting test case in terms of the, the duration of the peak. The peak that he had was dominant. He was one of the best all-around players in the game for a period of about four to five years. Injuries happened later on, obviously, but he was on some significant teams in Philly, back-to-back -back World Series, great October performer. 
when you think about all the home runs that Chase hit in in the month of October and what he meant, I think he, he turned a pretty good double play. Obviously, defensively, wasn't great, but solid. And so I think that his his numbers, what he was able to do, stand out because of just the, the, the greatness of the peak, whereas Jimmy was more of a long-term greatness in terms of the number of games that he played, number of hits, a number of – he's actually a unique shortstop in the history of the game, the only one that have hit certain numbers of – triples stolen bases and home runs that jimmy was able to, to hit the, as a switch hitter i just think he was at his peak it was an nl mvp booney for me it's a great double play combination that i hope is one day honored together because of what they meant in a great baseball city in philadelphia great points on that the last one is and this is interesting to me because we're coming into an era now where it's going to be more prevalent the closer role uh, it's, it was pretty obvious at the beginning, you know, it's Mariano and then it's Trevor. And then after that, it's like, well, well now who gets in, you know, you're looking at Billy Wagner. I look at Billy Wagner's numbers. He got 400 and some saves two, three, I think throughout his career for an ERA, the closers are going to have to start getting into the game at that position. And I'm looking at Billy Wagner. I'm I'm on board with you on Billy Wagner. It's like, well, it, it, it starts. All right. Mariano's at the top for pretty much everybody. Hoffy, in everybody's mind, kind of in the history of the game because the save, you know, didn't come into vogue until, I don't know, different people will say different times. But obviously, Trevor's number two. And then after that, it's like, well, they can't be the only two in the Hall of Fame. You know, there's a closer on every team and there's going to be more and more. So I'm with you on Wagner. Speak a little bit on Billy Wagner. Sure. I, I think one thing, Booney, that I'm looking at very carefully now is is how many innings do we now look at as the threshold to be a closer and get in? And Wagner was at least able to get over 900. Typically, when I look at relievers, I would have liked for them to have 1,000 innings. That's just a general benchmark. But for those that are truly dominant in the way that Billy Wagner has been truly dominant, I'm willing to grant an exception. And when you look at to your point, the number of closers who have retired from the game with at least 900 innings and then 400 saves plus an ERA under two and a half is just Mariano and Wagner. That's it. The only two. And so that that peak of the, of the dominance that Billy had, I believe he belongs. I love it too. Arguably, his best season was his last one, 2010, the bullpen in, in Atlanta, of course, he, he he pitches for Bobby Cox in, in Cox's last year as a as a manager. That bullpen had a young Craig Kimbrell and a young Johnny Venters at that time in 2010. And and that year Wagner made his seventh all-star appearance. He had an ERA under two, and he retired right afterward. And so if if you look at it and say, could he have stayed on and gotten more numbers? Of course. But I, I just think that he, he made the decision. For his family, it was the right time to walk away at the age of 39. He was as good then as he ever was. And so I, I just think that the swing and miss, he never walked a lot of guys. Really historically significant closer. Pitched on some great teams in Houston, obviously. Think about how many players from that era will be in the Hall of Fame with, with the Astros. Then, of course, went on to the Phillies and the Mets. The Red Sox briefly and then finishing up with the Braves. It's a historically significant career for somebody, Booney, that I love this part of the story. Naturally right-handed. What? He was right-handed, broke his arm <laughs> twice when he was seven years old, and learns how to throw left-handed and then throws 100 miles an hour. 
I mean, th- like that story, Booney, you've been around the game a long time. You're a right-handed dominant person. And you and then you flip around and throw left-handed a hundred miles an hour. I mean, that's one of the most impressive stories I've heard in the history of Major League Baseball. He goes to Division Three Ferrum College in Virginia and becomes a first-round pick. An amazing journey, clear Hall of Famer for me. And I think Booney, there's a decent chance he gets in this year. And Billy, it, the reason I'm voting for him, the only reason is because I never got a hit off him. And he drove me crazy. I'd come into the game and I'd be like, I see the ball this big off Billy Wagner. I mean, I saw it as good as you could see it. I could not square it. I would pop it up every single time. I think, and I look through my career, uh, you know, because closers aren't aren't where you make your money. You know, that closer comes in, Hell's Bells used to play or, or yep. uh, enter Sandman. It's usually not a good feeling for the opposing hitters. It's not like it's our funnest at bat of the night. Um, but I remember Billy Wagner. I'm like, one day I'm going to get a hit off this son of a bitch. <laughs> and it never <laughs> happened. It never happened. Him and Rob Ned. I could not get a hit off Rob Ned. I got a hit. I hit a double off Rob Ned in, in, uh, in spring training. And I looked at him at second base and he kind of looked at me. He goes, you know, you know, that doesn't count. I said, I know, Rob, but it felt really good. Rob so, Nen, man, oh, he, was, he, so, was, he was so dominant. Smoke on the water there in San Francisco. Uh, I, I loved watching him pitch. He was one of my favorite closers of the late 90s, early 2000s. Of course, a huge part of the Marlins World Series team. Yeah, he was, uh, he was I, nasty. I, oh, I loved watching him pitch. And again, thinking about great entrance music, you've got Enter Sandman, Smoke on the Water. I think those are probably two of the greatest entrance songs ever for a closer. You got it. All right, let's change subjects real quick. What's going on this offseason so far? Obviously, we're not going to get into we, we beat the Otani thing and the Yamamoto to death. Uh, but what do you see happening? Um, well, let's start with this. Winners and losers so far for John. Hard to say any team but the Dodgers to begin with the winners, what they've been able to do. They just keep adding talent, even Tasker Hernandez in the last couple of days, which has been I think he's a great, great fit for that team to be a platoon partner potentially for Jason Hayward. Uh, really like what he's going to be able to do. And, and again, I think you're seeing with, with this super team in L.A., players want to go there. They want to be part of this team. It's, it's going to be one of the most closely watched teams in the history of Major League Baseball because of all their star power. And, oh, by the way, they have uh, Freddie and Mookie still coming back. <laughs> so let's not forget about them. So that, I, I think we start with them as being a clear winner. I, I think other teams have done a pretty good job of, of improving around the margins and, and making themselves into more of a contender. I look at the Tigers uh, here in my home state of Michigan. They add Flaherty. They add Maeda. They add Canna. Again, not superstars, but they're in that division making themselves into a much more competitive group. I think that the Cincinnati Reds, from that standpoint, in the NL Central, they add Jamer Candelario. They add uh, Montas in recent days as well. They're going to be a really good ball club with a lot of their young talent that they've already got, uh, I think, coming up. I think teams that I'll at least mark as an incomplete, maybe not losers at this point yet, but at least an incomplete, Baltimore. They need to bring in some high-end pitching. This team is so good. Booney and so primed to win for so long. I'm, I'm sure Aaron wouldn't love to hear me say this, but if they if they can find a way to add a couple starting pitchers, they're going to be a tough team to beat for a long time because they've yeah. got Jackson Holiday coming in. So I, I mark Baltimore as an incomplete. 
The Red Sox are a bit of an incomplete for me as well. Um, I, I do think your old team in Seattle, I think they've done enough to get themselves back into the conversation in the AL West. Uh, I would have loved to have seen them make a, a more of an aggressive spend on someone like a Bellinger, but it looks like they've been more of the trade mindset and sort of reallocating what they've got in terms of their, their depth chart. But I, I do think right now you love what the Dodgers have done and some of those teams in the Midwest, the Reds and the Tigers, making themselves a lot closer to being playoff teams in 2024. Yeah, the Dodgers, we talk about all that that high-powered offense. One, for the record, I, I mean, everybody is going to be – they're going to be critiquing every move those guys make on that great of a team. But, I mean, I just look at the – I look at the – Otani's not even going to pitch this year. Right. And their rotation, as I'm looking at – you got Walker Bueller. He's right. still probably the number one on that staff. You've got a glass now who's who – I don't think we've seen his potential yet. If he can stay healthy, he's one of the best pitchers in the game. Yamamoto, who I've heard unbelievable things. We had Adam Jones on the podcast. He played with him two years in Japan at the end of his career. He said, Booney, this guy is the real deal. What's Kershaw going to do? I don't see Kershaw wearing another uni, but could he be the fifth starter for the Dodgers? Is that ridiculous? It's a great point. Well, he, of course, he'll probably sign. He's still technically at this point a free agent. I think the idea is that he will sign once he's ready to go. Maybe it's April, May, June, whatever it ends up being a midseason recovery where he'll sign and then ramp back up and, and play. So he he may or may not be there in spring training, but I think there's a belief that he'll be almost like a deadline acquisition for the Dodgers. And, and I'm glad you, you followed up on the Dodgers and asked me about him again because I want to mention one more team that I say is a winner this offseason, and that's the Diamondbacks, who let's not forget – When the Diamondbacks and the Dodgers just met in the playoffs in October, the Dodgers didn't even win a game. (laughs) So, and then the Diamondbacks, they go to the World Series with this young team, Corbin Carroll, Brandon Fott. They're able to bring back Lourdes Gurriel Jr. They've got Gabriel Moreno behind the plate. I'm a big fan of Perdomo at shortstop. Alec Thomas, that huge home run that he hit off of Kimbrel. This team, I I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch because – you're right. The Dodgers have all the superstar power and are amazing. But the Diamondbacks, they're probably saying, well, we respect you guys, but we're not afraid of you. And they shouldn't be because they beat them in the playoffs. So I, I, I think the Diamondbacks, they're one of my favorite teams to watch. You talk about athleticism. They play defense well. They run the bases well. They've got good young pitching. They brought in Eduardo Rodriguez, who I think is a really good yeah. fit. And I think this too, Boone, you look at the, the money they spent for Eduardo, it's still a great contract for him. But when you look at the rest of the money that's been spent on pitching this offseason, that's a really good deal for them. They got a guy who's really durable. I know he, he missed some time for off-field reasons in 2022, but he's a very, very dependable arm that I think is going to be tremendous as a fit for the Diamondbacks. So, uh, yes, the Dodgers are great, and they're the the favorites to win the World Series. I get all that, but let's not forget the team that went to the World Series is in their division still and a darn good ball club. Yeah, brought Suarez in from Seattle, 94 yes. ribbies, and plays a gold glove caliber defense. People don't know that about Suarez. He's better than you think defensively. Uh, I, I love that run, Johnny, last year watching that Arizona team. Because I don't care who you are. If you predicted they were going to be in the World Series and have a chance to win the World Series, you're crazy. <laughs> but they put themselves on the map. You found what a fun team they are, what an athletic team they are. And they belong there. And it and it just goes to show you, especially in this day and age, especially 
with the setup the way it is now. 12 teams get, and I'm calling it the tournament now. It's almost yes. like March Madness. 12 teams get, get in, which as a purist, I don't like because it's like, wait a minute. You have to earn the right to get in 162 games. But then as a fan, as an ex-player, I look at it and I go, I enjoy it. I enjoy the excitement. I enjoy all the cities uh, being in that playoff hunt when normally you're talking about football. I think it, they've done a good job. Whatever that mix is, I, I think, you know, changing that one game playoff to the best of three, I'd still like to see more of a best of seven because I think that's where you get the best teams. You see the depth. You get to get into that third, fourth starter. Uh, I don't know how you fixate that, you know, with the schedule, and there's so many games already. I just think that seven-game series is so important to to kind of show who's the better team because anyone can win in a best of three. Anybody right. can win in a best of five. But the best of seven really shows your teeth. Like, who's that fourth starter? Are you deep enough to go to that fourth starter? Um, and, and most teams aren't. But um, just seeing the great teams in the last few years of the playoffs, that Dodger team, 111 wins a couple years ago. Knocked out a year ago, out. So it's right. not always the best team. It's the hottest team at the right time. So I'm with you on that Arizona Diamondbacks. Dodgers are going to be fun to watch. One of the most talented teams of our uh, of recent times. But as you're seeing in Major League Baseball, that's no guarantee. Exactly. And I think, too, you talk about the, the way that the playoff format Fits and, and there was a lot of criticism in 2023 about the way that it played out because there were some top seeds that lost. But I would mention that in 2022, the team that won the World Series was a top seed. <laughs> that was the Astros. They did just right. fine uh, during the course of, of the playoffs. In fact, uh, they swept the Mariners and then swept the Yankees uh, in the playoffs in 2022 before getting to the World Series and winning it there against Philly. So I do think, and again, that was a very experienced team. They'd been in the playoffs before they understood how to approach the mentality of, as you say, tournament baseball. But I, I like the format. I, I, I do. I am always a little bit wary about what a layoff can do for a for a top team that that then has that break. But the 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 antidote to that, and the thing that more teams need to do, is to build up your rotation. If you have, if you come out with with some alphas. In that rotation, the way that the Astros did with Verlander that year and Farmer Valdez and Javier and McCullers, there you were. There you had it. That's why they won the World Series. And so I I think you have to realize the importance in building a rotation. The Diamondbacks, as great as they were, they didn't have a fourth starter. They got to the all the way to the end without a fourth starter. And and that I think is the reason why they went out and got Rodriguez. That's why you're you're hearing a lot of excitement right now for Shota Imanaga coming over from Japan because Teams need guys they believe can start games in October, and we're seeing how that becomes the separator And Texas. Look at Jordan Montgomery, what he brought to that club in 2023. You have to have guys that can do that. And speaking about that Texas team, you wonder when DeGrom comes back, what kind of value he'll have. And that's the comparison, Glasnow and DeGrom. When Glasnow is healthy, he's got DeGrom stuff. That is that is DeGrom level equipment that he brings out to the mound. And I'm really excited to watch Glass now pitching in LA near his hometown where he pitched there at Hart High School there in Southern California. A few more minutes before I let you go. Um, Crystal Ball, what do you see happening between now and the Super Bowl? Let's you see. You guys still on the board a Bellinger, a Snell, right. uh, Chapman. 
There's a lot of guys. There, this, we're only halfway through, Booney, in terms of the usually by the by the Super Bowl by this time in the next next several weeks, we're usually almost done. And now we still have some significant names still to go. I think Chapman and the Giants makes a ton of sense. Hoskins and the Cubs makes a ton of sense. The Cubs have to get, as I see it, either Hoskins or Bellinger. And I think that they realize that that time is probably on their side to get one of the two of them at the number that they want. The interesting part, of course, is they're represented by the same agent. Scott Boris has both Bellinger and Hoskins. So I'm sure there's a bit of a, a staring contest going on there among, among the parties. Montgomery, for me, whether it's Texas, uh, I, I do think that the Angels need some pitching. The Red Sox need some pitching. It's, again, it all comes down to, to money and numbers. The Red Sox were in there for Teoscar Hernandez. Eventually, they were not able to meet the AAV that the Dodgers had. But the Red Sox know if they want to compete with the Yankees, compete with the Rays, compete with the Orioles, they have to get better. And and the Blue Jays as well. They're a team that I think are still potentially in the mix for someone like a Bellinger or a J.D. Martinez. Again, J.D. Martinez also a Boris client. So there's a lot of of conversations going on right now. Scott typically is comfortable holding his players out until closer to spring training beginning or even after it begins to make sure that they get the most – value and and so i think that's that's why there's a bit of a a slowdown in the marketplace i think scott has uh, the the numbers in mind that he wants teams obviously have not hit them yet for snell for montgomery but but the need for for a level pitching is there and i think snell is someone that look at a team like whether it's the giants or the the angels maybe wants to stay out on the west coast uh I, i think that with montgomery i still love the fit of coming back to texas because as great as they're gonna be Brett, during the course of the year, they don't have Scherzer and they don't have DeGrom to begin the year. And Malley's coming off a of surgery too. They need an opening day, ready to go rotation. And I, I just think it's not the same club if they can't find a way to bring back Montgomery. What's the camp this spring you want to be at the, would you need to be at the most? Mm. I think you have to say Dodgers just to see what that what that's going to look like in terms of worldwide media attention. That's probably my first initial reaction is the Dodgers. But I, I love also, to your point, you maybe go to some of the teams that aren't as automatically thought of right away. I think the, the Diamondbacks are reigning National League champs, and they've had a really good offseason. Jung-Hoo Lee going to the Giants. That's going to be a lot of fun. You'll have a lot of international media following him around as well. One of the great nicknames in the history of Major League Baseball, Booney, because his father, Jung Bom Lee, was named <laughs> Son of the Wind. And so that means Jung Hoo Lee is the grandson of the wind. I mean, best nickname ever, as far as I'm concerned, the grandson of the wind. He wears 51 in honor of Ichiro. Uh, he is a very fleet of foot himself. So I think Jung Hoo Lee, an underrated, great spring training place to go to. I still think Scottsdale Stadium has a lot of its charm. Love Scottsdale. Love that that vibe there for the Giants. I think that's still a great place to be. Yeah, Dodgers camp is going to be unbelievable. You know, I lived the Ichiro, his rookie year. That's right. And I knew, But now you've got Otani and Yamamoto and the greatness <laughs> of that team overall. It, it's going to be, it's going to be unbelievable. That's what shocked me. I don't know about if it did for you. And when, when Otani signed with the Dodgers, I thought, well, Yamamoto is definitely not going to sign with the Dodgers now because he wants to have his, he doesn't want to be in the shadow of Otani, but then you see the way they structured Otani's contract. It's like, 
and then he signed with him. It's like, well, maybe they had something going. Like, I'll structure it if you get Yamamoto. And right. that was really interesting to me how it played out. But it's definitely to be something to watch. John Morosi, I appreciate I'm sorry I kept you. I, I started you late. I kept you longer than we agreed to. But a lot of great stuff. And I, and I really appreciate you coming on the Boom Podcast today. My pleasure, Brett. Uh, I've always loved our conversations over the years. I get a chance to see Aaron a lot during the course of the year, too. And I mentioned learning about the game by talking to your dad. So it's it's the least I can do to help a, a family that's been wonderful to me over the years. So I, I send my very best wishes in the new year to you and yours, Booney, and look forward to our next conversation, too. I appreciate it. For those of you who are on YouTube now as well for, to, for watching, I appreciate it. For those of you tuning in and heard this podcast, we will see you next time.